Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Russia. People are talking about Russia. You can see why. Russia is uh, something we feel we need to get a handle on these days. We forgot that we need to get a handle on it. People during the Cold War talked about little else than the Soviet Union and Russian history. And then for 20 or 30 years, perhaps Russian studies slid slightly more into obscurity, but they're back. Folks, they're back. And Orlando Fage is back with a gigantic new book on the history of Russia. Pretty extraordinary timing. And I ask him in this podcast how the events of this winter, the invasion of Ukraine, affected how he wrote the history. Orlando Fage has written many beautiful books on Russian history, in particular A People's Tragedy. is one of the best history books I think I've ever read. And he's taught at many British universities. I caught up with him to talk about his new book and the history of Russia. Enjoy. Orlando, thanks very much for coming back on the podcast. You're very welcome. Where did these pesky Romanovs come from? Were they famous before they became Tsars? <laughs> Not really, no. They came from, well, I wouldn't quite say obscurity, but they were sort of people who hadn't offended anybody else during Russia's civil wars that followed on the death of uh, Ivan IV, Ivan the Terrible, and embroiled Russia in all sorts of chaos, famine, foreign intervention. And by the time that the Poles had been expelled from Russia in the great sort of national uprising of 1612, they were looking for a new dynasty. The Rurikid dynasty had effectively died out with Ivan IV, and they needed someone to bring the country together. The Romanovs had kept their powder dry. They weren't a particularly distinguished family, but they had, because of their mediocrity probably, not been involved in any of the infighting between the boyars. And so they were the sort of least offensive candidate. Uh, Mikhail Romanov, the founder of the dynasty, was the son of the patriarch Filaret, who had some popularity with the Cossacks. Now, the Cossacks were terribly important in this dynastic change because they were the only really effective fighting force that Russia had, other than sort of peasant rebel armies or volunteer armies like those that had mustered to expel the Poles. So, 
Being popular with the Cossacks was a big advantage for the Romanovs, and they also had a rather obscure, but nonetheless at the time considered quite important dynastic link back to the descendants of Ivan IV. So some sort of argument for continuity could be made by selecting Mikhail Romanov. And is Mikhail's grandson, Peter, known as Peter the Great, is he the pivotal early Romanov? Is he basically the reason that the Romanovs become this sort of illustrious dynasty who sit atop the Russian Empire for three centuries? That's a very interesting question. I hadn't really quite thought about it in that way because I think historians tend to think of the state of Russia, not in dynastic terms. I mean, dynasties can be changed. But the importance of Peter is in consolidating a sense of statehood and indeed a new style of statecraft that hadn't existed in Russia before. I mean, before Peter the Great, going all the way back arguably to the Mongols, you could say that Russia was a patrimonial state. In other words, the notion of the state was embodied almost entirely in the person of the Tsar. The Russian word for state, Gasudarstva, comes directly from the word Gasudar, meaning the lord or sovereign. And so earlier Tsars had ruled the dynasty and Russia as a whole as if it was part of its private property, its household property, like a large estate, and it would give out parts of its estate to servitors to uh, serve in the bureaucracy or in the army. But when Peter comes along, he wants a more European style of absolutist rule, I guess. And so he establishes chancelleries to run government in the sense of a sort of impersonal bureaucracy, which would have a sense of the interests of the state or the commonwealth. And that was an idea that he had picked up from German cameralist thinkers and shifted the notion of power really quite dramatically away from the person of the Tsar, the head of the dynasty at that moment, towards the idea of the Tsar being the overall head of a state that had its own interests of the people at heart, the Commonwealth, this notion of a separation, if you like, between the Tsar and the state developed. But the interesting thing about that is that In the popular consciousness in the 18th and 19th century, and arguably right through until the 20th, the Russian popular imagination still tended to see the Tsar as the head of the country in a way that linked them back to the patrimonial tradition. They still tended to see the Tsar as a human god, really, whose power was sacred and who was a protector, a benevolent protector of the people against the boyars, against the bureaucrats. So what the popular consciousness wanted was a Tsar who ruled apart from the state that Peter had established. And indeed, there was a good deal of popular resistance to Peter's notion of the state, but which would rule in a patrimonial and paternal way to safeguard the interests of the people. And that was always really a subversive element in Russian history, that popular notion of the benevolent Tsar, because rebels could pretend to be the Tsar in order to overthrow 
a monarch deemed not to be ruling in the interests of the people. If a Tsar came along and was seen as a Tsar tormentor, Mulchicho was the Russian word for this concept, then he couldn't be the real Tsar in popular folklore. So along could come a pretender, usually a Cossack, who was using this myth of being the real Tsar to gather an army and supporters. And this Cossack would begin to sort of claim he was the real Tsar, especially if a Tsar had been murdered, as was often the case in Russia, unfortunately. And no, he hadn't been murdered. The Tsar still existed. It is I. And on that basis, many pretender Tsars, I mean, historians have counted about 30 of them in the 17th century and about 15 to 20 of them in the 18th century. And they could, as they did in this time of troubles I mentioned before, they could mobilize quite significant social movements protest movements to try and unseat the Tsar and put on their ideal Tsar, this Tsar who would be the paternal sacred figure. As Bakunin, the famous anarchist, put it in the 19th century, the Russian Tsar is sort of the embodiment of all the hopes and ideals of the Russian people. He is a Russian Christ. And so a Tsar could easily become a revolutionary. The sacred status, the ideals invested in any of the Tsars in the popular imagination before 1917, that sacred status could be then reattributed to Lenin and Stalin, and indeed today one could argue Putin too. Crikey. I think in the West we don't really talk enough about one of the greatest imperial acquisitions of all time is the building of modern Russia, the Russian Empire and the building of modern Russia. It's going along at the same time as European empire building in India, in North America, the French, the British, the Dutch. And yet we don't talk about this astonishing and arguably the most successful because it endures to this day. The Russian empire largely endures, the largest country on earth. What is the relationship of the czars? with? Are they like the king electors of Hanover, Frederick the Great and his father and grandfather? Is it an aggressively top-down movement or is this expansion kind of going on because of crumbling frontiers, because of individuals like equivalents of Cecil Rhodes in 19th century Southern Africa, pushing at the frontiers and, and just accumulating more territory? It begins with Ivan IV and the sort of colonization, you could call it, of Siberia, which begins under Ermak in Russian myth in the 1580s. And Ermak was really just a Cossack who was a mercenary and was out in what we would now call the Urals, but then was considered the Siberian part of Asia. And he was there to defend industrialists like the Stroganovs moving into an area where the Tsar gave them a license to colonize in the hope that they might find gold. But Mostly the drive east by Cossacks and other industrialists and entrepreneurs was was for fur. I mean, that was the gold of the early modern period, that these furs that they could collect as tribute from the Siberian tribes could be sold for huge quantities of money in the markets of Moscow or indeed exported to Europe, where most ermine were worn by aristocrats and servitors at courts around Europe, were of Russian origin or of Siberian origin. So that was the sort of commercial drive east, but it was only much more gradually followed by any sort of state structure or indeed by the church building monasteries and trying to 
rather weakly compared with the sort of missionary element of empires in Europe, the Russian church was not particularly interested in that. They were more inclined just to collect lands and give their blessing to those who colonized the East. But once the state got involved, of course, and started sending out its explorers, the most important, like Bering, for example, who discovered the Bering Straits. That was in the 18th century. But before that, there were many explorers, again, many of them Cossacks, who would effectively build fortresses in Siberia and claim it as theirs and then fight off tribes that might attack or try and divide and rule between the tribes and take tribute wherever possible from those it could enslave. So that was the process. I wouldn't say it makes out for a very aggressive state, but I think, as you say, the problem is the openness of Russia's borders, especially in the East. There's no real physical divide between what we would now call European Russia and Asiatic Russia. The Urals are really just a series of high hills with gaps between them. So the Eurasian steppe, on the western end of which sits old Russia, was subjected to transhumance over the centuries. The sort of Tatar or Turkic-speaking element in Russian culture, which began with the Mongols in the 13th century, continued through most of Russia's history. So there you get the sort of Napoleonic phrase, you know, scratch a Russian and you'll find a Mongol. So it's this openness of the borders, which I think becomes part of this Russian state imperial practice of expanding into what they would have thought of as a vacuum in order to protect the center. Because the borders are so friable, are so porous, the state as a centralizing military power from the 16th century, attacked by you know all sorts of tribes on the Eurasian steppe or the Crimean Tatars in the south, let alone the European powers in the west, the state as a centralizing military power feels the need to occupy the borderlands in order to defend itself. And that's gradually how it expands. But of course, because its expansion is so rapid, I mean, from the 16th century until 1917, the Russian Empire expanded literally at 50 square kilometers every day, a massive expansion. Because of the acceleration of Russia's expansion and then the appearance of Russia on the European scene in the 18th century and culminating in its defeat of Napoleon in 1812-15, the Western powers assumed and thought it was naturally aggressive. It was naturally an expansionist, aggrandizing empire. Now, you can have that view. It's a perfectly tenable view. Or you can have the view that it's expansion or colonization of this Eurasian steppe is internally driven by its own insecurity. And maybe you can come to a view that would coordinate or navigate between those two polarities. And I would probably say that at times there have been periods when Russia has attempted to expand aggressively. We're living through one now. And there are other times when Russia has simply been the dominant power in a territory where it's filled through churches and Cossacks and colonists and settlers of all sorts without necessarily having what we would now think of as a sort of imperial project of colonization. 
you listen to Dan Snow's history, talk about the history of Russia. More after this. Gone Medieval is History Hits podcast dedicated to the greatest millennium in human history. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman, a Viking Age bioarchaeologist and author. And I'm Matt Lewis, a medievalist and writer. Every Tuesday and Saturday, we'll explore some of the biggest stories, the greatest mysteries and latest research. We'll talk Vikings, Normans, Popes, rebellions and so much more. We'll travel the medieval world in search of the stories you haven't heard and get under the skin of the ones you do know. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. did Hitler's sexuality shape his worldview? Why did the Black Death lead to the rise of the witch trials? And what are some of the sauciest scandals involving kings and queens at Hampton Court? I don't know about you, but this is the history I want to hear about. If you do too, then join me, Kate Lister, every Tuesday and Friday to find out the answers to all of these questions and more. Listen to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Come back to Peter the Great. We associate him 
with the building of St. Petersburg and we associate Catherine, we've all talked about Catherine the Great with the conquest of southern Ukraine, the Crimea. How much real power did the Romanovs wield? A lot of that story is about the problems that the court and its bureaucracy, the Germaners of a state, had in really exercising influence and power in the provinces. I mean, Russia is a very large place. It's a literate nobility capable of performing such functions is small. There was always this tension, really, between the need for centralization because decisions had to be taken at the center. I mean, as Catherine the Great put it in her treaties on the Russian state, Russia is too big a country to be anything but an autocracy because you have to make executive decisions quickly. It takes months to get a letter to a provincial center. To get one to Siberia in the 18th century would take up to two years. So you cannot rely on consultation. You have to take executive decisions. But at the same time, the power of the state is almost non-existent from the viewpoint of a provincial town, let alone a village. So they have to put in charge servitors, the pamieshiki, the landowners who were given access to land in exchange for performing the bureaucratic functions of the state. But that was effectively to give the pamieshiki a sort of almost a status of ownership over their serfs. They had judicial powers over their serfs. Serfdom having been introduced in the middle of the 17th century, precisely because the landowners found it so difficult to tie the peasants to the land. And then beneath the level of gentry administration, which might incorporate a rural area of, you know, a small English county. Beneath that level, there are just villages which are effectively self-governing. But under the jurisdiction of the gentry's magistrates, who would come and collect taxes off them, who would come and enforce conscription, because the Russian serf had to pay double tax. They had to pay taxes to their owner, the landlord, but they also had to pay taxes to the state in the form mostly of conscription. So the state as a military centralizing force was very dependent on these intermediaries, particularly the landowners, to enforce its power. And it never quite trusted them enough to do it out of what we would call noblesse oblige. I mean, that was the great project of Catherine the Great when in the 1760s, she emancipated the nobility. Peter the Great had effectively conscripted the nobility to serve as civil servants or military servitors. Catherine said, we can't use compulsion to try and disseminate the power of the state. We have to use the conscientious voluntary service of a nobility that has a sense of serving the public good. But of course, within a system of serfdom, that was very difficult to achieve because those very same landowners who were being asked by Catherine to effectively have a sense of commonwealth in their jurisdiction over the localities, at the same time owned serfs who they 
ruthlessly exploited to the point of affecting corporal punishment, rape of serf women was not uncommon. So the abuse of the serfs by these people who were supposed to be Catherine's provincial administrators, I mean, this was a hopeless situation. And it was not until all too late, unfortunately, and I'm talking now about the middle of the 19th century, that the Russian monarchy really properly began to consider the issue of how to administer the countryside, this vast area where the state was so weak. And that was only after serfdom was abolished in 1861. So you can see that the real contradiction in terms of administering this vastness of Russia, of making the power of the state effective in getting the subjects to do what they were supposed to do, the real sort of elephant in the room, if you like, was serfdom. Well, that's Alexander II who gets rid of serfs, but let's come to him just quickly. Just give me a brief, who are some czars that we need to think about that are important? We got Peter, we talked about, who reforms the state, who builds some peace by, etc. Would it be Catherine? Who else do you like to draw people's attention to that we, who we should know more about? Well, if you go into that room in the Kremlin where Putin entertains his guests at that ridiculously long table, there are four statues of Tsars. So from Putin's point of view, they are the most important and they are Peter the Great, and Catherine the Great, the 18th century emperors who extended the boundaries of Russia most, Peter by reconquering the Baltic lands from the Swedes in the Great Northern War, and Catherine the Great in extending Russian power onto the Black Sea coast and annexing Crimea in the 1780s. He also has in that room a statue of Alexander I, who reigned from 181 to 25, and who was, if you like, in the Russian story of their own history, the great saviour of Russia, because he defeated Napoleon and drove Napoleon back to Paris. And so could claim for Russia this messianic role that Russian mythology assigns to itself as the saviour of Europe, the saviour of humanity, indeed, if you believe that Russia is the true seat of Christian orthodoxy. But the fourth Tsar, and I think he's terribly important to consider, because in many ways he's most like Putin, is Nicholas I, who followed on Alexander I's death in 1825 and reigned until 1855, when he died in the middle of the Crimean War. And Nicholas I is, I think, a role model, firstly because he was a stalwart defender of what he saw as conservative Russian principles. He was the founder of the Holy Alliance, which was to combat all forms of secular nationalism and liberal movements in Europe. He believed strongly in defending the orthodox abroad. In other words, here we get the beginnings of this idea that Putin takes up that Russia is bigger than its geographic borders. It is defined as a sort of civilizational empire, incorporating all those orthodox communities 
in Nicholas I's case, he had in mind the Balkan Slavs and indeed the Orthodox he wanted to defend in Jerusalem. The Holy Land dispute with the Catholics being the direct cause of the Crimean War. And that war was, I think, the other element that Putin sees as a great positive element of Nicholas I, that in defence of Russia's spiritual principles, the defence of the Orthodox, Nicholas I was prepared to stand up against the whole of Europe, as indeed he did. I mean, I don't think he was counting on Europe intervening in the Crimean War. He thought he could bully the Turks into submission to give him what he wanted in the Holy Lands before the Western powers intervened. But in 1854, the French and the British landed an expeditionary force in the Crimea and destroyed the Russian naval base at Sevastopol and then imposed a humiliating peace on Russia, which was for the Westernist intelligentsia, for the liberals of Russia, a great catastrophe because he isolated Russia from the West. But for Russia's nationalists, like Putin, I believe, he was a great hero because despite his defeat, he had stood up for the true moral principles that Russia's civilization represented. He had, moreover, taken on the West and exposed its hypocrisy, the idea that it really was interested in defending the Turks. Nonsense. It was after a good old Russian bashing in order to help British and French interests in the Near East. That's at least how the Russians saw it. So this resentment of the West because of its double standards and hypocrisy, this has all become part of Putin's rhetoric. And it's rooted, I think, also in his vision of what Nicholas I represents as an important chapter in Russia's self-awakening, in Russia's coming to a position where it's prepared to differentiate itself from the West and fight for its own interests. Well, you brought us up to the present day. I mean, when you set out to write this book, the full-scale invasion of 2022 had not taken place. Did that change your thinking at all? Did contemporary events change you as a historian? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, the inspiration for the story of Russia came from, well, I mean, since 2014 and the beginning of this dreadful Russian invasion of Ukraine, there has been, I think, a growing disconnect between the way the Russians see their history, or at least how the Putin regime tells the Russians how they should see their history, and how we in the West have written the history of Russia. So... Thinking about writing a sort of accessible short survey of Russian history from the earliest times, which is what I set out to do, it seemed obvious to me that the important thing to bring out was how the Russians see their own history and what are the mythologies and ideologies, the values they invest in certain chapters of that history. Because only when we begin to see that and understand where they're coming from can we begin to deal with this growing sort of imperialist aggression from Russia. It might seem now, wow, Orlando, you've written a book which is, you know, right on the button. But actually, the way that this was going was clear from 2012, when I think Putin began all this rhetoric about the Russian world. And then the invasion of Crimea was making it pretty clear that he was going to swallow up Ukraine because he didn't believe in its right to exist. 
And sure enough, I mean, in 2016, the scene with which I open the book is then another indicator, and I'm referring to the unveiling of this hideous monument to the Grand Prince Vladimir, the 10th century ruler of Kievan Rus who converted Rus to Christianity. And this was unveiled to great fanfare in Moscow in front of the Kremlin with speeches from Putin and the patriarch Kirill saying how this was the foundation of the modern Russian state, that you could draw a direct line from the foundation of Kievan Rus to the Russian Empire, to the Soviet Union, to the Russian Federation. And this was all one people, all one nation, and that therefore Ukraine was no more than a region, a borderland of Russia, of greater Russia. That was already, it seemed to me, clear in 2016. And so when I set out to write this book, I thought, well, that's where I have to start because we really need to understand what the ideology of Putin's historiography is. It's not new. It goes back to the historiography of the 19th century, but it's very different from the way we would write the history of Russia today. Well, thank you very much for giving us that um, tour through the Tsars. We didn't, of course, (laughs) talk about the most famous Romanov moment which was their demise. My exciting secret is that my wife is descended from the Romanovs, so therefore my kids are as well. Michael Mikhailovich of Russia was Tsar Nicholas I's grandson. And if you remember, he married morganatically, so he was kicked out of Russia. Indeed. The best thing that ever happened to him. So he ended up living in London and Cannes and survived the revolution. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah, well, you've married well, may I say. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, sure. I'm, I'm not sure I want Romanov blood in my children's veins. I'm a bit nervous about it. Well, you're fine, you're fine. <laughs> they might invite you back to become Tsar one day. <laughs> I wouldn't take up that offer. Yeah, well, I, really I think my, my, my daughter could be well be the Tsar that they're looking for. That's all I can say. Um, Orlando, <laughs> thank you for this. And tell us what the book's called. It's called The Story of Russia. There you go. Simple as that. We only scratched the surface, obviously, but Orlando Fage, thank you so much for coming on and talking about it. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. I feel we had the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Snow at checkout.